How's everybody? You ladies rock. I was, you know, we, you noticed, uh, we had fewer people in the worship team this morning and we didn't have any ladies. So all those lady voices you heard came from you guys. And I was impressed. I mean, I was sitting right there and at first you guys were like holding back for like maybe, I don't know, eight bars. And then you jumped in on that first song. And what a difference it made. And just loved your your voices this morning. Had to throw that out there and say that to you guys. So, uh, my name's Alan. If you're new to us, uh, if you're just visiting for the first time with us, we're so glad you're here. We are today finishing up a lesson series that we've been doing uh, since, well, almost for the last three months. The lesson series title is The Truth About Lies. Has it been good? It's been real good, hasn't it? And I, and I said at the, at the onset of this series that it was a pretentious title. Like we're going to be able to tell you all the truth about all the lies. There are too many lies. But what we've really tried to do is instead of uh, trying to find every lie that we could think of and tell you the truth about it, we wanted to give you a set of tools to help you begin to spot lies to understand the strategy behind a lie, where they come from, and how you can spot them, and then how you can replace those lies with the truth. And I hope that it's blessed you. I know it's blessed me. It's pushed me. And I hope that it's pushed you a little bit too. So today we're going to try to wrap that up, that series up. Starting next week, Mike Denius is going to be starting a new series called Fireside. Can't wait to see what he's got planned. He's got four weeks that he's going to teach us. And so I, I invite everybody to be a part of that. It should be a lot of fun. should be very good. But today, the lie that I'm going to try and talk to you about is this one. Moderation in all things. How many of you guys have heard this, uh, this saying? Moderation in all things. Gary's heard it, I know, because I've been shouting it at him for a while. Right, Gary? <laughs> He's back there giving me the big high sign. Yeah, me, me, me. Comes up in our conversation a lot over the last week or so. I've heard this a lot. Does it sound like a lie? It doesn't. It doesn't sound like a lie. In fact, it sounds like something that ought to be in the Bible. But is it in the Bible? Well, obviously, if that's the lesson title and I've just told you it's a lie, you're probably clued in the fact it's not really in the Bible. But it kind of sounds like it is, and I'll show you where. It's over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 25. Paul says this, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. That almost sounds like moderation in all things, doesn't it? But is self-control the same thing as moderation? You might have to think about this one for a minute, huh? Because they almost sound like they could be the same, don't they? And I think there's a connection between the two, but I do not think that they're the same. Consider, if you will, 1 Corinthians 7, 9. See, Paul is the only author in the Bible that uses the specific Greek word that we have here that we translate, some translations translate it as self-control. I just showed you the ESV. The NIV translates that word uh, strict training. Does strict training sound like moderation? Sounds kind of like the opposite of moderation. But look at this, because this is what he says, and he uses that same word in 1 Corinthians 7, 9. He says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, he's talking to the widows and the unmarried specifically, and he says, if they cannot exercise self-control, it's the same word that we just looked at just a couple chapters later, And uh, he says, if they can't exercise this self-control, they should marry. Uh, Would it be, make sense of this sentence if we said, if they cannot exercise moderation? Because he's talking about sexual immorality. Is his 
command here is his advice here. Just keep it moderate. A little sex outside of marriage is fine. I'll give you a hint. <laughs> In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, just a chapter earlier, he's just got through saying sexually immoral people will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's obviously not saying moderation is the same thing as self-control. He does say we're supposed to have self-control in all things, but he doesn't say we're supposed to have moderation in all things. This is a tricky one. Have you already caught on to that? So you're going to have to stay with me today to work through this because I think there's really a pearl that we can grab a hold of here that, that can really help us go deeper in our relationship with Christ. But we've got to look at this idea of moderation in all things to get at that pearl. It's tricky because there is a principle in the Bible of moderation. You guys are aware of that, right? There are all kinds of uh, moderation verses about moderation in food, moderation in alcohol, moderation about buying things, materialism, stuff like that. But the clue is it's not moderation in all things. Early on, when we were looking at the nature of lies and where they come from, one of the things that I remember us talking about, and one of the things I found out early on, my, my first job in this world was as a police officer. I took up that job whenever I was 21. And one of the things that I learned very quickly is the very best lies have the most truth in them. Have you guys seen that? Does that make me match your experience, your common sense? And I think there's a little bit of that at play with this. Moderation is a biblical principle. But moderation in all things, in all things, is not. So where does the saying come from if it doesn't come from the Bible? Where did we get this? Would you believe me if I told you that it goes as far back as 700 B.C.? Yeah, it goes as far back as 700 B.C. from Greek poets and Roman dramatists. For instance, the Greek poet Hesiod, he had this statement. He wrote it down, and we still have it. It says, observe due measure. Moderation is best in all things. So this moderation in all things has been around for a while. Not only did he say that, but the Roman comic dramatist Platus said moderation in all things is the best policy. But catch this, they were not talking about morals. They weren't talking about living a righteous life for God. What they were talking about were basically just saying that too much of a good thing might be bad and a little bit of a bad thing might be good. Does that sound familiar? How many of you guys believe that? Not a lot of people are willing to admit it this morning, but I know a few of us have bit off that apple. And I put myself in that group. This is worldly wisdom. Moderation in all things is worldly wisdom. Paul makes the reference to worldly wisdom in 2 Corinthians. And he doesn't deny that it's wisdom. It is wisdom. It's just worldly. It's not godly wisdom. And godly wisdom shows the foolishness of even the most brilliant of humanly wisdom. We know it's worldly wisdom, but is it the truth? Is moderation in all things true? Consider this. If it's in moderation, is a little immorality good? Not according to Jesus, not according to any of his apostles, according to the world, what do they say? They say it's good. I remember being a young man and having my older brother, he'll probably not listen to this, so I'll get by with naming him. My older brother said, who puts on a pair of shoes without trying them on? He's talking about having sex before marriage. It took me years because I was like 13 at the time. It took years for me to put it together that he's saying a woman's like a pair of shoes. You want to walk on her. Yeah. Worldly wisdom says, yeah, a little immorality is good, but God doesn't say that. If it's in moderation, how about a little stealing or lying? Is a little stealing or a little lying good? Is that the best policy? According to God, no. What about the world? I'm afraid that that is a positive piece of advice that we get from the world. Cheat on your taxes. 
You ever been charged for something, the wrong price to your benefit? Going through the line, do you call attention to it or do you, as my dad called it, do you skate? Do you take advantage of it? Worldly wisdom, not godly wisdom. If it's in moderation, is a little murder now and then cool? I wish I could say that even the world around us acknowledges that that's not okay in moderation, but what about abortion? It is what it is, folks. So, on its face, we know that moderation in all things can't be the truth. But as Christians, can we still fall into this lie? Can we still bite into that apple? Absolutely we can. I know what's happened to me. I know I still have to guard myself against it. And I buy into this lie specifically two times. Whenever I rationalize doing something that I shouldn't. How many of you guys, like me, tend to rationalize stuff? You've got a way of talking about it, thinking it through, spinning it, framing it, setting it up just right so it doesn't appear to be too bad. Whenever I rationalize doing something I shouldn't, what I'm actually doing is I'm compromising. God says something, and I say, yeah, that's true, and then I compromise. And I say things like, I'll do it just once. This one time won't hurt. Who's going to know? You ever said any of those things? So this idea of moderation in all things might be somewhere buried down inside you too. The second way that I buy into this lies when I rationalize not doing something that I know I should. Get it coming and going. I rationalize doing something I shouldn't, and I also rationalize not doing something I should, which is being passive. It's holding back. Now, I don't want to miss, I don't want to overstate something here. I, I, We've only got a certain amount of time here, so I I can't belabor any one point long enough to my satisfaction to avoid making it an untrue statement at a certain level. I do think that finding, looking for and finding balance in our lives is probably good. And if we don't limit ourselves somewhat, if we don't hold back, I mean, we cannot do every good thing that's possible, so we have to make some choices. Is that being passive? Well, not necessarily. See, while looking for balance is probably good, looking for comfort usually isn't. So whenever I'm holding back on doing something that I know that I should because I'm more comfortable not doing it, I'm probably buying into the idea that moderation in all things is the best policy. Do you follow me so far? You guys with me? Because it's really, really quiet in here. And that's great if you're, if it's just soaking in and you're thinking about what I'm saying. If I'm confusing you, I need to back up. You good? Okay. So then let's press along here. What's the deceptive idea with moderation in all things? Remember what Satan's strategy is. The devil's strategy is what? Deceptive ideas that play to a disordered desire that's normalized in a sinful society, right? What's the deceptive idea? I think it might be that compromise and passivity work. What's the disordered desire that it plays to? How about, I can get by with it. I can get by with doing this. I can get by without doing that. How many of us like to set those limits for ourselves? Has it been normalized in our society? Oh, yeah. That's unmistakable that this idea of moderation in all things, because it puts you in control, doesn't it? So which one of the three greatest questions in life does this target? Remember we talked about that? The predictability of the devil's strategy whenever it comes to trying to sell us lies, to derail us and get us off course, to mess with those mental maps that we operate from, it's predictable that he's going to come at us in the three biggest questions of life. Who is God? Who am I? And what is the good life? We've talked about this before. Well, let's look at it real quick. Is he going to target who is God with this one? I think so. 
I mean, what about are God's rules good for me? If God's rules can be moderated, then are they really good? If they are good, who are they good for, him or me? Get that? So the nature of God comes into play with this. Who am I? Does that one get attacked with this particular moderation in lie, in all things? That, that lie? Does that one get attacked? Yeah, I think it does. Who am I? Moderation lets me say that I'm in charge. That I don't really have to take God that seriously. What about the good life? Does this one trip us up in that one and how we define what the good life is? I can see an argument for that one. Because all of a sudden I can say the good life involves less conflict. Is that true? Well, moderation in all things does help me to avoid conflict, or at least presumably that I avoid less, more conflict. Produces less stress. Because I'm not fighting, giving in, and I'm not fighting to be faithful. I, by the end of the lie, I'll just be a good person. How many times does that lie, I'm just going to be a good person? I'm not a bad person. And we, we're rationalizing either not doing something we're supposed to do or rationalizing doing something we know we shouldn't. And we back it up with this idea that, but I'm a good person. So what I, I hope I've given you here is enough reason to suspect that moderation in all things is not true. It's a lie, and it's an insidious lie. It hides so well because it sounds so true, and it almost is true, but those are the best lies. Let's nail this down one more way, and this is, I think, maybe the best way. How does Jesus feel about moderation in all things. Do we have a word from the Lord on this? I would give you two examples that I think speak to this, and they're both found in Revelation 3. He talks to the church in Laodicea. In verse 16, he says, So because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. What does lukewarm sound like? Moderation? Compromise? Is being spit out of his mouth a positive thing? I've heard some people say, he's saying, you make me want to puke. It's definitely a rejection of some sort, right? I don't think that Jesus is a fan of this idea of moderation in all things. I think he's a fan of moderation in some things, but not in all things. The other example out of Revelation 3, I think, is the church in Sardis, because he wrote this to them. He said it in Revelation 3, verses 2 through 5. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Boy, things you would not want to hear on the top ten list, things you would not want to hear from Jesus. Strengthen what's about, what's about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Does that sound like passivity? Unfinished? But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you'll not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. What's the implication? The one who's sleepwalking, the one with the unfinished deeds, he's not talking about them. He must be implying that they will not be in the book of life. He says, but the ones that are they're walking with him, he will acknowledge, I will acknowledge, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. He'll acknowledge us before if we don't give in to moderation in all things. I don't think Jesus is on board with this moderation in all things idea. Do you? In fact, he sounds hostile towards the idea. Do you get that flavor from what he's saying? I do. Okay, so what's the truth I do need to believe? If moderation in all things 
is not the truth I need to embrace. What is the truth I need to embrace? And I would suggest that it's this. I don't need moderation in all things. I need self-control in all things. We're back to where we started. Paul is using this word for self-control in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-25, and I'll read it again. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? By the way, I don't think that what he's getting here is the idea of competing against one another. He's just talking about you run to win. He says, run so that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So Paul covers kind of all the bases with just these two verses here. Let's ask some questions of it. First one is, why do I need self-control in all things? It's right there, we just read it. Why why does he say we need to have self-control in all things? Say it, Mark. And why do we want to finish the race? What's at the end? The prize. To win the prize. Paul's using the Isthmian games. Uh, Do you know what Corinth, where Corinth was on the map and what it looked like around there? Greece is, uh, there's a lot of islands and there's some land masses. There was this little narrow bridge of land between the Aegean and the Mediterranean and they call it an isthmus and Corinth sat right there. And Corinth became a very influential, almost like a modern equivalent to Las Vegas for us. And they originated, it was actually pagan rituals uh, to worship, I think, the god Poseidon and the founder of the city, but they came up with these games very much like the Olympic Games. In fact, these games were very popular, and they did them, if you had the Olympics this year, you would have the Isthmian Games the year before and the year after. So in the four-year cycle for the Olympic Games, you'd have the Isthmian Games on year two and year four. Yeah, I think that's right. Anyhow, that, that's, they, they had them very often. And people would come from all around the world to compete in the Isthmian Games. You know what that does for the local economy, right? Because you have a lot of people showing up, a lot of people hanging out, a lot of people enjoying the games. In other words, it's not a secret. Everybody in Corinth, in the Corinthian church that Paul is talking to, knew exactly what the Isthmian Games was all about. They saw it all the time. And they knew that those that ran and fought in those games kept a strict diet. That they trained very strictly and they exercised self-control. For what purpose? So they could win. We just finished the Olympics. Did you look at some of these athletes? Some of these athletes, it looks like, man, I just want to give them a hot dog or something because there's not like a scrap of fat on them. I could give them plenty of my own. I got way too much. But you know that they have gone through, if you, how many of you follow the Olympics and Olympic training and seen some of that? Gary, do they have crazy, strict diets and training programs? And is it worth it to them? To them it is. Yes, we've, we've talked about this. Sometimes I look at the price that these athletes are willing to pay and think, man, oh man, they're doing this for what? A medal? For that? Who remembers who won gold four Olympics ago? I, you know, sometimes I, I, I don't remember who won these year, this year's Olympics gold medals. But people sacrifice their lives by training so rigidly so that they can win the prize. And that prize that Paul knew of and that his crowd knew about, the Corinthian church knew about, was a wreath. And this wreath originally was a kind of a wild celery. They'd make a little crown made out of wild celery. You know how long that thing was going to last? They didn't have refrigerators. A few days and then it's going to start stinking. Later when the Romans got involved, they started using pine limbs, pine tree limbs. And, but it still didn't last long. Could you imagine? I mean, I'm a bald guy. Having, you know, pine limbs wrapped around my noggin is more of a punishment, I think, than a, than a prize. But these people train every bit as hard as our modern day athletes to win something that wasn't going to last. Paul is saying we got something that's a whole lot more valuable that we're trying to run for, a prize that's waiting for us. What's that crown? What's that prize? What is that crown? The crown of life, exactly. 
What's the crown of life? By the way, you'll, you'll find the reference to crown of life in James 1.12. What's the crown of life? I think it's eternal life. In John 17.3, Jesus said this, and this is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is? Here we go. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who you have sent. See, when we talk about eternal life, sometimes I think we have a narrow view of it. That it's something that starts when we die. That it's something in the sky in the sweet by and by. That, you know, someday, if we're good enough, that we'll have eternal life. And we think of it in terms of qualitatively. Like how long does it last? We'll never die. But it also brings into scope the idea of qualitatively. Which means that we already have eternal life now. And it's about knowing God and Jesus. But it's not just knowing about them that he's talking about. I know about Joe Biden. I don't know him. I know about Wayne Smith. I know Wayne Smith. I could pick any number of names. You get where I'm going with this? The prize that is there for us if we go into this strict training and use self-control is to actually know God and Jesus. Who else besides me is motivated by that? That's what I'm in this for, guys. I want to know them. I hope you do too. It's not just knowing about them, but really knowing them. And the key to it is self-control in all things. I will know God and Jesus, and I'm trying to wrap this up and get us out of here this morning, make sense of this. There are three things that I want to show you. I'll know God and Jesus, like Paul's talking about. I'll win this prize if I, number one, reject mediocrity. See, moderation in all things is a plea for some form of mediocrity. Middle of the road, not too extreme, one way or the other. But that's not how you know God and Jesus. If we're going to actually come to know them, we're going to have to reject mediocrity. 1 Corinthians 9.25, again, we just looked at it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. That's great. Where do I get self-control? How do I get self-control in all things? Well, let me tell you, you don't get it. You don't get self-control by doubling down on willpower. Have you tried that? Have you found out that being good is just kind of a lie? I don't think it just comes naturally to us. We try harder. Man, that's that's a rock. You just keep pushing up a hill and you never get it to the top. It just rolls back over you and you start all over again. Because willpower is kind of like a muscle. It gets tired and it it wears out. Right? So where do you get self-control if you don't get it through just doubling down? Well, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. You get it from the Spirit. Galatians 5, 19 through 24. He starts off, he says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. And then he contrasts it. Verse 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Have you ever, this is a familiar passage, right? I mean, there's other things that are a fruit of the Spirit. But he's showing the the juxtaposition, the the teeter-totter, the black and the white, the opposite. And he says, acts of the sinful nature, acts of the flesh, are on this side. And the exact opposite is fruit. Of the Spirit. Has that ever caught any of you guys off? Like, what's the difference between acts, actions, and fruit? Because you'd think if he's going to make an apples for apples comparison like he's trying to do here, he would have said the acts of the flesh and the acts of the Spirit. But he doesn't say that. He says the acts of the flesh and the act of the fruit of the Spirit. What's the difference between acts and fruit? Acts are what you do. Fruit is what the Spirit does. Fruit grows. It happens naturally. Anybody here ever, ever seen an apple tree going, 
Out comes an apple. I need more apples this year. Harvest is down. Does that happen? It doesn't happen that way, does it? The tree is just out there being the tree, and guess what happens? All these, these apples, if it's healthy. And that's the way that it is with the fruit of the Spirit. We're not going to have self-control by trying to double down on willpower. It's going to come from having the right relationship with the Spirit. What's the right relationship with the Spirit? How do we, how do we get this? That's the question. How do I get self-control? Number one, I ask God for the Holy Spirit to fill me. Jesus talked about this in Luke eleven thirteen. He says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? What's the good gifts from the Father? The Holy Spirit. If you want self-control so that you can win the prize to know God, to know Jesus, not just about them, but to know them, you're going to need self-control. That only comes as a fruit of the Spirit, and that only comes from asking for it. Second thing is, if I walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Over and over in Scripture, the Christian life is called a walk. It's one step, one intentional step after another intentional step. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Galatians 5, 16-17, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Did I say that right? The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. There we go. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. See, walking by the Spirit is just satisfying the desires that He gives me. We overcomplicate it because we tend to want to be independent. We tend to, we're Americans, I think we got it worse than maybe any other generation. We tend to think bootstrap, do it ourselves, knuckle down, nose to the grindstone, and it just doesn't work that way. Not with fruit of the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is just satisfying the desires that He gives me. See, grace. Grace is a complicated word. One of the things that I've I've come to understand about grace is it is God's divine influence on your heart, on my heart. In other words, God puts the desire to do His will inside us. Remember all the Old Testament references, I'll write my will on their hearts? That's what He's talking about. Do you want to do God's will? I do too. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from me. I know myself well enough to know that the things I normally desire are to gratify myself. But whenever I really want to do things that are not seemingly in my best interest, but in God's best interest, where does that desire come from? From God. How do I walk by the Spirit? By choosing to satisfy that desire. And it's just one step. Again, sometimes we make things so complicated. Wherever you are this morning, if you're battling this moderation thing on some level, let me encourage you to begin walking with the Spirit this way. What is it you know you're supposed to do that you're not doing? Don't get out over your skis. <laughs> don't think 20 moves down the road or into the game. Don't, don't try to you know, get checkmate in three moves. Just what is the thing that he's put in front of you that you know you need to not do, to stop doing? Or what is it the, the thing that he's put in front of you that you know you need to start doing? Just take that step. And guess what? You'll be walking with the Spirit. You know what happens after that? He shows you something else. And you just follow where he puts the desire in you. Satisfy that desire because you cannot serve two masters and you won't be satisfying your sinful nature if you are satisfying the Spirit. And what's to be gained? Self-control. I'm choosing, I want this. So I'm controlling myself to move this way. And I'm naturally walking away from sin. And what's to be won? I'm going to get to know God. I'm going to have eternal life, a crown of life. And that's not someday in the sky. That's starting right now. It's a quality of life. How many of you have already tasted that? 
You, none of us here, I, I don't think, know God and Jesus perfectly. But how many of us have gotten just a little taste, a little sample? And you go, oh man, this is, this is incredible. And to think about having more of it motivates you. Yeah. See, I gotta choose which set of desires I want to satisfy, mine or God's. Moderation in all things is trying to straddle the fence between these two sets of desires. Anybody here got a picket fence? Would you suggest that anybody come over to your house today and try to straddle that? Yeah, one foot on each side. Yeah, you caught the imagery, right? That's going to be a very painful experience. So is trying to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. So is trying to satisfy some of me and some of thee. Moderation in all things puts you firmly with one foot in two different worlds, straddling a picket fence. And how many of us have been foolish enough to be there and found out just how painful it really is? You got too much of the world in Nathan. You got too much of the world in you to feel good in church and too much of the church in you to feel good in the world. That's why Paul's talking about these two fight each other. You can't do what you want to do. You've got to choose one or the other. Grace will, God gives you grace. It moves you. Gives you the desire. Walk by the Spirit. You'll have self-control. Satisfy the desires that He gives you at the expense of the other desires. And you'll get off that picket fence. The second thing I can do to get to know God and Jesus, it'll happen if I remove my restraints. If I remove my restraints, do not want to ask you to put your hands up right now, but how many of you right now this morning know you are holding back in your walk with God? You don't need me up here to tell you where you're doing it, do you? How many of you right now, this morning, listen to this, have some sin that's holding them back? Some area of compromise? See, there could be not just sin. That's an obvious one. But sometimes there are things that might even be good. They're morally neutral or positive thing, but they hold us back. In Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 1, the Hebrew writer, we think it's Paul, people debate that, says this, says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. That's one category. Everything that hinders. And the sin that so easily entangles. That's the other category. Why? so that we can run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, the passage that we've been basing all this off of this morning, the NIV says in verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Strict training means that I'm going to throw off things that are in my way. Sin and everything that restrains me, everything that slows me down. Moderation in all things is the exact opposite of strict training. It's poor training. I used to box. Not great at it. Did it as an amateur. But it was one of those sports that if you didn't train, you would be found out really fast, and it hurt. It hurt a lot. Worst beating I ever took was up in Indianapolis. I did not go into uh, into strict training for this. I was a young man. I was a hot shot. I thought I was fairly good. I went to a new gym, hit the bag, sparred with a guy. Hadn't been in the gym in six months. And the coach says, man, you look good. we got a fight coming up Wednesday night. You want to jump in and go with us? A buddy of mine was like all about it. And so I thought, okay, I'll, you know, whatever. He said, I promise I'll get you a novice, you know, somebody that doesn't know what they're doing. You know, you'll be, you'll be great. I get up to Indianapolis, and they put me in with a guy that was a light heavyweight. I was a middleweight. And the referee says to me before they ring the bell to start it, be careful, this guy hits really hard. I'm thinking, well, where's the sub-novice with no experience go? 
And this guy came at me like I said something bad about his mama. And I got to tell you, I was not trained for that fight. I got beat like a cheap steak. I mean, it was an embarrassment. I got found out because I didn't train. If I had trained for it, I would have had to stop eating. I, I drank an orange Julius and ate a donut before that fight. Does that sound like strict training? No, <laughs> I did not go into strict training. But how many times have I gone into battle with the devil and I had an orange Julius and a donut? I'm not taking my training seriously. And how badly have I gotten beaten? Has it happened to you? Yeah. See, when you start working out, and it doesn't matter which sport, you know, boxing was just something I did for a little bit. Whatever sport you want to think about, if you're going to start, or, or just maybe working out for fitness, you're going to start light and you're going to build, right? I mean, I remember my first day in the gym, I got beat up by a 90-year-old man. It's a long story, I won't get into it, we don't have time. But where I started changed. I slowly began to build and get a little stronger, get a little bit faster, get a little bit wiser. And that's the way it is when you start working out. Eventually, though, and all of you that have ever worked out, whether it's for fitness or for uh, athletic competition, you know this to be true. Eventually, you hit a plateau. Am I right? You hit that plateau? What's a plateau? You start off, and you're growing, and you're doing good, and you're excited, right? You're learning new stuff, you're getting new skills, and then it start, the learning curve starts to slow down, and you hit a plateau, and you kind of even out, and you're not really growing anymore. Everybody with me? If you want to win the prize, or not get beaten seriously badly like I did, what do you do when you hit a plateau? You usually examine your life and you look for behaviors that are working against your goals. The donuts aren't helping me. I had a, had a goal of losing some weight and getting in shape a few years ago. And uh, I used to jog or walk down to Duke's Bakery, which was just you know like a half mile from my house. I'd stop, get some donuts, walk back. I gained five pounds. That jogging was just not working for me. I don't think it was the, I don't think it was the jogging. I think it was the donuts. So it was not, it was working against my goals, right? By the way, that's not true. That's just in the preacher's illustration. But you get the idea. When you hit a plateau, you start looking at things that are working against your goals. Chris, you went through this. You ran some marathons. Did you find yourself having to make some adjustments to your lifestyle? And some things had to go. Even things that weren't bad, probably. But they were against your goals. Maybe you needed to eat better. Maybe you needed to get more rest. Or maybe you needed to shake up your routine. Focus on the different aspect that you were training on for a while. Maybe you needed to refine your routine and do it better. But it takes effort to bust past a, past a plateau. What you don't do when you hit a plateau is justify it by saying moderation in all things. You don't say things like, well, I don't want to overdo it. You do what it takes to win the prize. Why am I telling you all this about athletics and working out? Because it's the same thing spiritually. We all started somewhere. And do you remember those early days when we came out of the baptistry? Or maybe when you first started studying the Word of God with somebody? And you take off. And things are clicking. And things are growing. And it's exciting, and you're learning new disciplines, and you're coming to know the Lord, and at some point, things start to slow down a little bit, don't they? And then you hit a plateau where you don't feel like you're growing anymore. What do you do when you stop growing? It's the same thing. You examine your life, and you look for behaviors that are working against your goals. You don't do, what you don't do is you don't justify yourself by saying moderation in all things. You do what it takes to win the prize. To know Jesus, to know God, to have that crown of life, to have eternal life in the here and now. The one thing I can tell you, after all these years, 40 some years of being a Christian, 
anybody that's been a Christian for a little bit, is there really such a thing as a plateau that looks like this in the Christian walk? Because what I found is we're on a uphill grade the whole time. Whenever you try to go into cruise control and level out and take it easy, guess which direction you go? You go backwards. Ever tried to ride a bicycle backwards down a hill? Danny? Unsuccessful. Not a lot of competition for... (laughs) No, it, it doesn't work out real well. And what I can tell you is whenever you stop growing, and it happens to all of us, whenever you hit a plateau, if you decide to get comfortable, guess what's going to happen to you? If you're not into the strict training thing that that Paul is saying that we have to have, if you really don't care about having self-control, which only is a fruit of the Spirit, which comes by just following Him, staying in step with Him, satisfying the desires He gives us, you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to go backwards. And it is no fun coming down a hill backwards. So, let's move on. Oh, well, hang hang on, I I did have something else in my notes I want to say here real quick. Um, this idea of plateaus is where a lot of conflict starts in churches. Have there been some conflicts here? Has COVID created some conflicts? Here's what happens. Those of us that have been Christians for a while, those of us that have grown, and I'm not talking about necessarily years or months, because spiritual maturity comes at a different rate. It's hard to put on a calendar. But you know that amongst us, there are those that are more mature and those that are less mature. And I'm not at all telling you that I'm at the top of that list of most mature. But I'm somewhere, and there's always going to be somebody that's more mature than me. Is that true of you? It's always true that there are people at different places, and those that are more mature have gotten that way by busting through, blasting off, blasting through plateaus. And here's what happens in churches, and it happens not just in this one, but every church I know of. One of these more mature Christians will see someone who's less mature who has plateaued, and it becomes kind of obvious. You can look around at your friends that you know in this church, and you know which ones are at a plateau. Am I right? I know you don't want to be all judgmental, but even they'll tell you sometimes, yeah, I'm not, it's not exciting for me anymore. I don't feel like I'm growing. Things are getting stale. And an older Christian, a more mature Christian, will start to give advice on how to blast through that plateau probably because they've been there. And the average response is, man, thank you. That's awesome. And they double down and they they get right back into it and grow, right? I wish. There's a percentage of a time where that's exactly how the response is. If the heart is good, but sometimes what happens is people like their plateaus. They get comfortable with them. And so what happens is they buy into this idea of moderation in all things. They think it's okay to compromise a little. Or they think it's okay to be a little less aggressive, a little bit more passive. They think it's okay to straddle that picket fence. And as an older Christian, and and maybe you've been the older Christian, and you try to get someone to blast past it because you know this is a painful place to be. You know that the only direction is downhill backwards. And you can see what's coming from them. So you try to speak truth into their lives. And what do they do? They get mad at you. Sometimes they attack you. Sometimes what they do is they run away from you. And with this season of COVID, and I, I don't, I don't have any problem saying this with confidence. This isn't just here, but a lot of churches are smaller coming back from COVID. A lot of people had hit plateaus and got comfortable with them. And then whenever COVID created more distance. In some cases, they got so frustrated with being at that plateau rather than being comfortable, they gave up and walked away altogether. In some instances, they got so comfortable with it, they didn't want to get back into strict training. And so they became uncomfortable being here. In some cases, they get tired of an older Christian trying to speak truth into their lives And so they decide to leave and go to a church where that won't happen as much. Some of us have even done that. We've been the I've done that. I've got a heart for people that are going through that right now. But I wanted you to understand, this is what happens. 
This is why you can't straddle these two worlds and survive with it. Mediocrity in all things is not going to work for us. The last thing I've got this morning is how did I'll know God and Jesus if, number three, I remember Jesus. If I remember Jesus. It's too easy to make the Christian walk about too many other things. This is always first, central, and last about Jesus. In Hebrews 12, 2 through 4, the Hebrew writer says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Does that sound like moderation? No, that is sold out. And the, the strict training he went through, that's another lecture, or another, another lesson series, how he got to this place to be able to do this. But it says, he says to us in verse 3, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you'll not grow weary and lose heart. If you want to know God and Jesus, you can't make it about church. Church fits into that picture. If, you're, if you know God and Jesus, church will be huge. But if you make it about church, God and Jesus may not be huge. Do you follow me with that? If you make Christianity about getting the life that you want now, and there's a lot of preaching about that, you're not necessarily going to know God and Jesus. And you're not necessarily going to bust through the plateaus. Matthew 22, 37, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. All, I think he means all. Is there any moderation in that? Moderation in all things will tell you it doesn't really have to be all your heart. You can love the world a little. Moderation in all things will say it doesn't really have to be with all your soul. It can be with just, you know, maybe most of it. Moderation in all things will say it doesn't have to really be with all your mind. You don't have to get in your Bible. You know, the, one of the things that has changed since I became a Christian, even since I came to Greater Alton, social media, the internet, cable news shows, the like of it, and I was talking with Gary about this the other day. Whenever I came here in 1991, some of the disciplines that we practiced, and some of them, many of them, still go on really well today, is there was a quiet time that we asked everybody to have each day. We asked them to learn how to have a 15-minute quiet time with God. We asked them to come to church on Sundays, sometimes more than once on Sundays. We asked them to come to classes somewhere in the middle of the week. We asked them to come to small groups where they would, again, talk about and learn from Scripture. And even with all of those things going on, and they were all very good, and I'm a fan of all of them, all those disciplines were great, but it was only a fraction of the percentage of the total volume of information and influence that I was ingesting on a weekly basis. Because the world shouted a lot louder. And what I noticed is, I had to, what do you believe? You end up believing what you hear the most. And so I had to fight back and go into strict training and study and learn how to have more than a 15-minute quiet time, but actually to make that quiet time last longer throughout the day. I had to spend more time in prayer to try to offset. And even then, I felt like I was on a boat that was leaking constantly. Worldly attitudes and ideas were constantly swamping the boat, and I was out there trying to bail it out. But today's generation, what we're dealing with right now, if you did everything I just talked about, the percentage of information that you're soaking in on a daily basis is so much smaller today than that those same disciplines would have been 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Whether you realize it or not, you're in the fight of your life. Because your attitudes, if you don't go into strict training, your attitudes and your opinions are going to be shaped more by social media and cable news networks than by Jesus. And plateaus will kill you. And you'll walk away never really knowing God or Jesus.
Okay, I got to wrap this up. What's holding you back this morning? Are you holding on to something that's holding you back? I mean, this has been a longer than I would like kind of sermon, but I hope that it's an important one for you. I hope that I've, I've persuaded you that moderation in all things is a loser, that it's a lie, that we need self-control in all things, and there is every huge reward to go this route, to get off that picket fence, quit straddling between two worlds, and be fully, without moderation, devoted to Jesus. I hope I've persuaded you for it, but as you look at yourself, remember I asked earlier, is there something that you know that you need to quit doing? Everybody said, yeah. Remember I asked, is there something that's holding you back? You said, yeah. Is there something you need to start doing? You said, yeah. Whatever that is this morning, I hope that you'll take it serious and, and ask yourself, where are your priorities wrong? Has something or somebody mastered you? Has somebody or something mastered you? Is it time to let that something go? It's worth it. There is no more miserable place in this world than to be stuck on that picket fence. It's time to unburden yourself from something so that you can run with more freedom and less weight and ride into the arms of a loving God. We aren't called to moderation in all things. We're called to self-control in all things. I hope this lesson challenges you, convicts you, and helps you blast past any any plateaus that you might be dealing with. I'm going to close this out by praying. If you would, bow with me. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for allowing us to be part of what you're doing. It's a privilege to be in your kingdom and to be called one of yours, to be a child of God. You called us out of a world that's passing away, a ship that's sinking that's never going to make it to where we once thought it was going to take us. And as grateful as we are, and as excited as we were when you first saved us, we all go through these times when we feel like it's becoming routine. We hit plateaus and we stop growing in this new identity you've given us. Those plateaus can cause us to feel either frustrated or comfortable. And when that happens, we can start believing that moderation in all things might be a good idea. And when people try to help us blast past that dangerous plateau, we can get tempted to argue with them or to just run away from them or to run away from this church that you've given us. Father, please help us not to let our love for you grow cold. We ask that you help us to want to rally and to really know you and Jesus so much that we'll do whatever it takes to keep growing and becoming more like you. Father, I ask that you fill us with a conviction that we never want to accept compromise or being passive about our pursuit of your righteousness. Please help us to let go of whatever's holding us back, even if it's a good thing. Father, I'd ask you to help us remember that this is all, all about Jesus, and that he's worthy of our absolute love and loyalty. Father, we all know people, people that we love and respect, who no longer worship you or don't want to worship you with us. On some level, so many of them have believed the lie that moderation in all things is is a good thing. They've hit a plateau and they got comfortable. They decided to hit cruise control and try and take it easy. Or maybe they got frustrated with people trying to get them to blast, blast past their plateau. Or maybe they blamed us for their lack of growth. Father, the pandemic seems to have caused a lot of people in this church and every other church I know of to hit a plateau of one sort or another. And now they've stopped trying. Or they've looked for a more comfortable church someplace else. Father, I ask that you please call them back. Help them to dream again. Please, Father, stir their hearts to remember their love for Jesus and help them to get back in the race. Father, we please... Help them win the prize. We would love to have them back with us. And of course, we ask you to bring them back here, but that's not the most important thing. 
You need them back in the race, and that's what we're praying for. Whether it's, it's with us or another congregation of your church somewhere, but Father, I'd like to have them back here and back home. Father, please give us wisdom as to how to help them and, and each other. Help us to love and support, encourage, and, and model the lifestyle you've called us to. Help us to run the race in such a way as to help the ones who don't know you yet to run the race and win the prize too. Father, we know one day this race is going to be over. We ask you that you help all of us to finish strong. Finish strong for your glory and your pleasure. We love you, Father, and it's in Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.